The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Now here's an interesting question. When this wretched virus has finally run its course, which churches are more likely to recover? American ones or English ones? And I say English because... Scotland, for complicated reasons, is a separate case, and we'll be talking about that in another episode. We'll be discussing mainly Catholics and Evangelicals, and my take on the former, for what it's worth, is that although lots of American dioceses are terrified of the lawsuits that are heading towards them, and indeed face financial bankruptcy, American Catholicism has a strong constitution, literally so constitution that separates church from state. In parts of America, Catholicism was booming before the virus. Will it boom again? Well, to answer that question, you actually have to know something about the culture of American evangelicalism, because the two have a surprising amount in common. In England and Wales, meanwhile, the small number of bishop bureaucrats who control the whole outfit are in deep trouble, and they know it. They botched their response to covid they bullied their own priests into keeping silent, and they're also trying to keep the lid on various other scandals, hoping that the fact that Fleet Street can't be bothered to report church affairs anymore will mean they get away with it. My guest today is a brilliant young musician, Keith Stanfield, who's been deeply involved in church life on both sides of the Atlantic. You last heard him on this podcast with his Opus 76 string quartet playing so beautifully the Song of Thanksgiving from Beethoven's A minor quartet. I can't resist mentioning that he's a former member of Western Samoa's national football team and indeed scored goals for them in World Cup qualifying matches, though he was raised and educated in Britain. Keith is a Catholic based in Kansas City, Missouri, who spends a lot of time at evangelical services because they hire him to play at them. He's also worked in financial services in the US, which is useful because one of the biggest differences between English and American Christianity is their attitude to money and the way they handle it. So he's just the man to give us an intriguing comparison. Keith, great to have you back on the show. Do you agree with me that it's not just American evangelicalism that's quite different to what we used to over here? It's American Catholicism as well. Absolutely, Damien. I think that that anyone who spent even two weeks in the United States of America, even as a tourist, going to Mass maybe twice, would understand a massive difference of approach towards the laity. The most immediate difference, for example, is, um, you know, I hope I'm not shaming myself here, but I did attend the oratory throughout my whole life. I love that place, and I actually got married there as well. My son was baptized, even though he was born in America. We flew back to the oratory. Now, if you say that to most people, 
you would assume that that would mean that you were devoted to the Tridentine rite of Mass. And actually, I have to confess, um, I enjoyed that from time to time, but really the, the Mass I went to at the Archery was the Sunday evening one, at the, the very, very last one, which was all in English. And it was about 35 minutes long, and that was the one that my, my family went to, and it was, it was wonderful. I also went to schools that were run by the Fathers of the Oratory in, in various ways. But the most immediate difference to the American Catholic Church and the English Catholic Church as a layperson is when it comes time for collection. When it was time for collection at the Oratory, for example, they'd pass a wicker basket round, and, and what you sort of sheepishly do, again, to my shame, I'm chastising myself here, but you'd reach into your pockets and... You'd pull out whatever was in there and you'd give you know, 27 pence and a chewing gum wrapper and a button. And, uh, and that would what be put in the, in the basket. In America, that is not how things are done. When you arrive in America or, or move into a particular neighborhood, you can't simply just go to the church in your new neighborhood. You have to sort of sign up. It's like joining a gym. It really is. Like you have this sort of welcome packet. You have to fill out forms. I didn't think to ask that I had to do that. And then I went into the parish office for something and they said, are you registered? And I said, well, of course I'm not registered. I was, I've been baptized <laughs> when I was zero. Um, you know, this is the Roman Catholic Church. I can just go in and come out wherever I, wherever I please, can't I? And, and apparently not. You have to sign up. And it's very rigorous. There's a very heavily implication that you should tithe your income and you have to sort of volunteer exactly what that is and give a percentage. And this is common actually across all christian denominations in america but the american catholic church have adopted this albeit in a less efficient and ruthless way as some other denominations who i believe ask for sort of substantial proof of 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 your your earnings but i mean the americans are really serious about money and funding and you know a lot of it is used for good you got to understand that america for example has no public health insurance and so the churches provide a lot of aid directly to people who need it. And by aid, I don't mean things like Oxfam, as worthy as they are. I mean aid to people outside of their doors every week, as in soup kitchens and caring for the homeless in a very direct way. And, and that's all funded by donations. And a lot of very good churches, they all have these huge homeless kitchens downtown that are right next to the church. And you can really see where your donations go. So it's not as if they're ruthless about collecting money and then it all goes to sort of chauffeurs and valets or you know various other things but they are very serious about getting their money's worth i have to stop you there for a second and remind you that there have been some atrocious scandals in the american catholic church and in the evangelical community as well where lots of money has gone on the wrong things very wrong things in some cases and the American Catholic Church is terrified about what's going to happen to the collection plate. But I still think that there is a huge difference in the culture and that we tend to overlook this when we say, oh, the American Church is in desperate crisis. Because it seems to me that successful parishes in the United States, and obviously many are dying, often for demographic reasons, but successful parishes are vibrant in a way that you rarely experience in Britain, and I include Scotland in that. And one of the reasons for that is simply that the calibre of clergy is higher, and that many bishops, including the liberal bishops who are so disliked by their conservative opponents, actually exercise leadership of which 
we've seen precious little, if any, in this country for years and especially the last few months. I think you make a lot of good points. I think whilst the American church is a lot more streamlined and efficient about collecting money, I can understand how their tithes, for example, may be at risk because as a layperson, you see more and more of a percentage of your money donated to the church going out to payouts from lawsuits about sort of very depressing things. And it, it does grow sort of rather frustrating. Factor in coronavirus and other economic factors and you start to think, why am I giving this money? Where is it sort of, you know, that I can barely afford? And to your point about closing churches, if you allow a situation to continue whereby a physical church is not a necessity, I do see that as somewhat problematic <laughs> for the long term. I mean, if you don't really need to go to Mass, I understand it's a very extraordinary situation, but how long can something be extraordinary for until it becomes normal? I don't think you can have a permanent extraordinary situation. And so once the, the premise is established, it's going to be very difficult for I mean, schools, forget about religion, schools are now having to adjust their whole fee-paying structure, you know, private schools, because they're, they're worried that they're not going to be able to have school in the same way. So parents are naturally going to say, well, why am I paying how many thousand pounds or dollars a year when my child can't come to the school and universities? So the same question is tacitly being asked about church. And in a times gone by, it was your faith and just the right thing to do that, that made you just donate to the church. And, and because of the unfortunate incidents of the last however many years, you know, decades that have now come to light, that moral automatic authority has been shaken. And especially adding to this the fact that we haven't had to go to Mass for a bit of a while. And, um, you know, there seems to be this general stepping away from the supernatural element of the church, which I think actually has been the most surprising thing for me as a, as a layperson to tie in with the difference between the American Catholic Church and the English Catholic Church. So to be clear, we're talking about a retreat from supernaturalism in the English Church, yeah, okay. One of the things that struck me coming here was that Americans spoke about their religion all the time. In some ways they had to, in some ways they didn't, but it was not really a taboo subject in the same way that it is in England, and especially politically speaking, people get very, very involved and very open with their views, and, and there's a lot of to and fro in in the public square. And that didn't just happen so much amongst ordinary people in England. But now that as a result of this pandemic, the sort of message that's filtered down to us, the lay people, seems to be, well, coronavirus is actually more powerful than Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, this he's no match <laughs> for, for this pandemic. And thank God wasn't around at the time of the resurrection because it just wouldn't have been possible. I do find it hard to understand how we're supposed to then go back to seeing physically being inside a church as central to our salvation in some way. I, maybe we're getting off topic a bit, but, but Americans were so sort of forthright and strong and vociferous about this kind of thing, about God being the answer to everything. And Whereas in England, it would sort of be more of, you know, it's just when you say the prayers, for example, in the mass, Lord be with you is this sort of typical English response. Whereas in America, everyone's sort of holding their hands up and holding hands with each other and, and really, you know, loud and proud saying those responses. Some people will be mortified in England. Uh, but yeah, there's this sort of mumbling, mumbling, sort of incoherent, very quiet noise that you get from an English Catholic congregation. And bishops, Keith. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't know. But, uh, but in America, you know, everyone's really like closing their eyes and really praying hard and and all the rest of it. 
uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in the future. Things are actually returning to normal as of this week somewhat. The cathedral here in Kansas City is, is reopening. It's interesting because American churches, again, they're very pragmatic. And part of that is understanding, as you said, how to communicate with ordinary people very quickly and in an organized fashion, because it's a very competitive environment. OK, well, you've raised three things, which I think are important there. Sorry, it's a bit off-putting when people say that. There are three things to which I'd like to draw your attention. But anyway, number one, COVID. All over America, there are Catholic priests, evangelical pastors, absolutely straining at the leash to celebrate their faith publicly the very second they're allowed to. And there's some bishop in Arizona, I think, who said, we're allowed to have gatherings of five people. Right, we'll have five-person masses in public it's far from ideal, but we start immediately. You wouldn't find that in England and Wales, where the Bishops' Conference, or the Vinocracy, speaking on behalf of the Bishops' Conference, have put out one of their sanctimonious but confusing press releases saying basically nothing except we want to open and having the sheer bloody nerve to suggest that it's the government holding it back, whereas we know it was the Catholic Church that went to the government and said, close us down for private prayer. So there's that contrast. Then, knowing how to talk to people. English bishops just can't do it. And that goes for the CV as well. It's oily, patronising jargon. But in America, it's different. Look, even those bishops who outrage many of us with their blatantly political messages, like Cardinal Supic, he's a personality. He's got some charisma. He's got his own fan club. You may dislike him, but you can't ignore him. And there are lots of American bishops you've never heard of, certainly not in this country, who've got what it takes. And I discovered this the other day when I clicked on a Twitter link and I went through to a little videotaped address by Bishop Donald de Groot of Sioux Falls, who I'd never heard of. And when I looked at his CV, it wasn't particularly memorable. But he talked about being a Catholic in lockdown. And immediately I felt that here was a real pastor who was speaking with warmth and conviction and as a normal human being. Not one of those speaker weight machines in Eccleston Square. I don't know whether he's liberal or conservative, though when I tweeted something about him, I had people saying he's great. But that just doesn't happen in England and Wales because the bishops have been so bloody snooty about social media for so long, because that's where they're held to account, that they've never bothered to learn how to use it. They can't even write a tweet. The official Twitter account of the Catholic Church in England and Wales doesn't know how to thread tweets together. It's pathetic. And finally, you said that American Christianity is a very competitive environment. Yes, it always has been. The separation of church and state was the greatest gift to American Christianity because there was no established church. And so you sank or swam. And you know this, the Puritans were challenged by the Methodists and then the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the Fundamentalists and the Mormons and so on. Now there's a whole school of thought among sociologists and economists. We won't go into it now, but it's a fascinating theory that religious activity really does correspond to the dynamics of a marketplace. That people invest spiritual capital and expect a return on their investment. That idea has never occurred to the vast majority of Anglican and Catholic bishops. They like money. They need money, they spend a lot of it, but they don't like free markets, as we know. They're public sector, not private sector. So they want handouts. 
And that's basically what's happening in parishes throughout the land. Congregations are being asked to subsidise. And it's never suggested that in return for giving more money, they might get some extra value out of the experience. It's not so much like joining a gym as signing on for the dole. Keith, you've worked in financial services in America. Did you notice any similarities between business practice and religious practice? Absolutely, Damien. So I uh, worked for five years in the financial services and an insurance company in America. And all this was without any business or academic qualifications whatsoever. My education has been purely uh, musical and artistic. And it was fascinating because it really taught me how Americans think in terms of capitalism and essentially getting things done, having a plan, executing the plan and delivering and then analyzing the results, the importance of having goals and knowing or thinking about how, how to achieve them. And this really does translate into how their churches are run. I mean, one example I can give you off the top of my head is one of the Methodist churches around here, and this is in the same city, has essentially franchised out. So they have this massive headquarters that, that looks like the Millennium Falcon, but it's 10 times bigger than the Millennium Falcon. And they've, they've opened, they call them campuses. I think the word franchise is a bit too secular. So they call them campuses, but they have a north campus, which is in the north part of the city, the south campus, and now a downtown campus. And, you know, it's not as if this city is the size of London. Despite that, this particular church definitely looks at parishioners as clients. And that's not in a detrimental sense. They look to serve these people. They look to meet their needs in the way that any other American business does. And they're very successful at it. Their main headquarters church that I mentioned earlier accommodates thousands of people. It's, it's like a sort of huge conference call on the outside. And they have these massive screens that look you know, the size of cinema screens. And I've played at this place a couple of times where they run commercials for their upcoming services and, and sermon cycles, as it were, in the middle of services backstage. I mean, I, you know, I hate to say stage, but it really is a massive stage. Everything is planned out to the second. And they have essentially stagehands running around behind you, telling you to get ready to go and play this song. And it really is nine minutes and 11 seconds. This happens 12 minutes and 20 seconds. This happens. The reason they do all these things is because they really are looking at the religious experience from the perspective of the parishioner or the mass attendee or the you know i was going to say concert goer and that 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 was that was sort of wrong but that's almost what it is because they realize their ability to do what they need to do to serve god is dependent on donations and this scrupulous attention to detail this desire to give people a, a three-dimensional experience if you like isn't something that only evangelicals can do look at your old church the brompton oratory or some hatrick soho both of which accomplish extraordinary things in terms of mission as well as beautiful liturgy. Or look at the Anglican Church of St Bartholomew the Great, where the rector, Marcus Walker, is reviving high Anglicanism in an extremely professional manner, because that's what it has to be, professional, whatever denomination you belong to. Then there's Westminster Cathedral. I never know quite what to make of the cathedral, because the standard of liturgy has always been excellent. But recently they've started demolishing the boys' choir, which is actually the finest choir in the entire Catholic world. And the reason for that, or at least the indirect reason, is the questionable, shall we say, management of the Westminster Diocese and Finances. But I wanted to finish, Keith, by asking you about church music in America. 
because it is a fact that many of the ghastly worship songs that are forced on Catholics, and my Anglican friends are always complaining about it too, I call it Joan Byers meets Hildegard of Bingen in a 1970s cocktail lounge, were composed in America and are still pretty much ubiquitous there, though I suspect they're at least much better performed. Well, yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. I mean, um, I actually do play at quite a lot of Methodist churches and some Presbyterian ones and the occasional Catholic one. But I can tell you that it's really a common experience for me to to go to these churches and play with their worship bands, as they call them, and just be sort of blown away by how really earnest they are and how much they really care about playing well and doing a good job. You know, they practice all the time and quite often many of them are not actually professionals, but they practice and practice and practice because they really feel that they are worshipping through their music making and adding to the religious experience of their clients, uh, of their church's faithful. They put so much effort into musical excellence that even songs like this can sound rather moving. Whereas back in the UK you might be more familiar with this version. Okay, enough, enough. Show some mercy. Um, That's Colours of Day, which was first forced down my throat when I was 17, I think, and... Unfortunately, it's still going strong, and who knows, could be the sound of music at Westminster Cathedral once they finish vandalising their choir. Keith Stanfield, thank you very much. Cheers, Damon. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today.